Before we begin tonight, let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study the Word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very grateful that we have you to come to in times of difficulty in our lives. We know that there are many people in the congregation who are facing uh, challenges. Some are medical challenges, some are financial challenges, some are related to employment. Father, we know that we are to cast our care upon you because you care for us. Father, we uh, look to you for strength, for guidance. We call upon you to sustain us and to strengthen us in times of difficulty. Father, as we look at the world situation around us, we see there are many threatening things, but, but in reality, the world system is always on the edge of collapse and destruction simply because of its very nature. The only hope is in our Lord Jesus Christ and in a relationship with you based upon uh, faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that tonight as we study your word that we might be encouraged and strengthened by what we study. Father, we also want to remember George Meisinger, Jim Myers, uh, Eager, uh, Small Yard in Ukraine, for these are missionaries we support, and we pray that you would strengthen them and that you would encourage them, especially George, as he is fighting this illness. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, tonight we're starting Romans chapter 14, Romans chapter 14, and Romans chapter 14 down through uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 13, is the last major section in Romans. After that, we have the conclusion and final, uh, final salutation. And this section that we're dealing with now is a specific problem that Paul addresses coming out of a discussion in chapter 13 where he began to talk about the believer's responsibility uh, to honor uh, government and to serve or to love others. Actually, this begins back in chapter 12. I just want to take us back there for just a second. In chapter 12, we have the, the summary opening for this last section that covers 12, 13, 14, and 15. Paul gives a command, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And as I pointed out when we began that, this the word there for service is liturgos, which indicates our personal worship in our life. The focus is that we are saved for a purpose and that is to glorify God. We are saved for a reason, and that is to grow to spiritual maturity and to reflect the character of Jesus Christ in our lives. Ultimately, that is demonstrated when we love one another as Christ has loved us. As we go through, and as I've outlined, the ten basic or ten spiritual skills that we develop in the Christian life, those that represent maturity are our personal love for God the Father because that is ultimately the motivator behind our advance into maturity, our impersonal or unconditional love for one another because that is a reflection of a mature grace orientation. We love others, especially those in the body of Christ, as Christ has loved us. That takes a tremendous amount of spiritual maturity 
The Old Testament command in Leviticus 19.18 was to love our neighbor as ourself. Notice the focal point in the Old Testament was to love a neighbor. Now it is to love one another. But there is a certain parallelism there because within the concept of the Torah, a neighbor was another member of the covenant community of Israel, uh, assumed to be a believer. But the standard the, of comparison in that command was as you love yourself. As the Bible assumes that every human being is a self-lover. This is the orientation of the sin nature. We're self-absorbed, and we are born coming out, out of the womb, uh, lear- loving ourselves and developing an expertise in loving ourselves from the moment that we are born. No one ever hates his own flesh, as Paul states in Ephesians chapter 5. And so that shows once again that the world system, the world thinking, and uh, psych- the psychological orientation the world has is that people have problems because they have a low self-image. No, they don't have a low self-image. They have a problem because they think too highly of themselves. And because they think too highly of themselves, they're disappointed in their failures. And because they're disappointed in their failures, they make it sound as if they hate themselves. But the Bible says no flesh hates himself. So the biblical truth is that it helps us cut through all the psychological mumbo-jumbo is that everybody has a basic orientation of self-love. That's the pattern that we see in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, Jesus says we're to love one another as I have loved you. Jesus is the pattern for our love for one another. And so this is the mark in John 13, 34, and 35. This is the mark of a Christian. This is how you'll know you are not a Christian. It doesn't say that. It says this is how you'll know you are a disciple. A disciple is a Christian who has decided to learn and apply the word of God in his life. Not all Christians are disciples, but all disciples, true disciples, are, are Christians. But not every Christian's disciple. Becoming a disciple is an additional uh, step or stage or phase as we begin to grow uh, spiritually. We come to understand the challenge before us as a member of the family of God is to grow to maturity. So in chapter 12, uh, Paul introduces this, that we are to serve God. Part of serving God means that we're going to put his will over our will. Whether you feel like that's a sacrifice or not, that's determined by Scripture to be a sacrifice. Uh, instead of living for ourselves, we're living for God. That's 12.1. And in order to do that, 12.2 states that we're not to be conformed to this world. The world system, and the word there is not cosmos, but it is the word ionos, which indicates the age, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. When we think in terms of the spirit of the age, then we're thinking in terms of self-absorption and, and self-love. So we're not to be conformed to this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Notice, it's not the renewing of our emotions. It's not the renewing of our liturgy. It's not the renewal of our ritual. It's the renewal of our mind. Again and again in Scripture, the emphasis is on how we think. That uh, we, we, if we think the wrong way, we're going to live the wrong way. 
And so we're challenged to think according to the scriptures. The problem that we'll see tonight with some Christians, with immature Christians, is that they don't know how to think. They don't have biblical knowledge in their soul. But but biblical knowledge is not an end in and of itself. Biblical knowledge or biblical information is simply a means to spiritual growth. We are to learn the Word of God so that God the Holy Spirit can use it in our lives to challenge us in terms of how we live so that the first stage is sitting where you are or sitting out in the uh, Internet area somewhere, live streaming or listening to some sort of recording And as you listen, you're studying, you're learning the Word of God. And if you're in fellowship, God, the Holy Spirit, is helping you to understand it and to apply it into your life. But he doesn't apply it for you. Your volition has to come into effect again. You have to choose to apply what you have learned. It is only when we choose to apply what we have learned under the power of the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit, that the Spirit uses that in terms of producing spiritual maturity and spiritual growth in our lives. So we're transformed by the renewing of our mind as we take in the Word of God and we get rid of the garbage that's in our soul from all of the things that we learned from the world system, from our peers and from others uh, prior to our, our justif- justification. After we're saved, as we are sanctified, it comes as a result of walking by the Spirit and letting the Word of God fill up our thinking and fill up our soul. The result is that by application, we demonstrate that which is good and acceptable and is the complete will of God. So that's the framework. That's that's the starting point. That's Paul's preface to this section. Then he focuses on spiritual gifts, and he talks about the fact that we are part of the body of Christ. We're all members in one body, verse 4. It's important to remember that. We're members in one body. Uh, we're different, but we're all unified, united together in the body of Christ, This is what took place at the instant that we were saved when we were placed into union with Christ, 1 Corinthians uh, 13, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. That sets us us up uh, in terms of being in one body. 1 Corinthians 12 also tells us that we're members of one another. Now, that's really important because as Christians, we tend to think, I mean, excuse me, as Americans, who have come out of a tradition of a strong heritage of rugged individualism with a strong emphasis on individual uh, responsibility and autonomy, we have a hard time understanding the concept of this integrated body that is the body of Christ. We are members of one another. There is a certain uh, co interdependence in the body of Christ where we're members of one another. We don't function autonomously. This is the the brilliance in using the body imagery. Uh, One person may be an eye, another person may be a nose, another person may be a hand or a foot. Each functions, each individual part has an important function, but that function is not 
independent of the function of all of the other parts. So is there, there's this interdependency that takes place in the body of Christ. We are all members of one body and we are members of one another. Uh, Romans 12.5 states that as well, individually members of one another. And then there's a list of some of the different spiritual gifts. Then in verse 9, he shifts his thinking again to the principle of love for one another. And he describes the characteristics of love. Verse 10, he says, be kindly affectionate to, to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. And he sets up those various one another commands that are stated several times in that section. This is further developed that part of loving one another has to do with submission to authority. This is what we covered in the first part of chapter 13. And then he comes to loving your neighbor. Part of our love for one another has to do with our submission to authority because to submit to authority, you have to have humility. Humility is also related to love for one another. You can't love someone if you're self-absorbed and arrogant. And so there's a connection there. Notice the long section dealing with love for one another from verse 9 to verse 21 is on the front side of the, of the section dealing with submission to government to the authority of government. And then the section following the uh, verse 7, the end of the discussion on government, Paul again refers to loving one another and what that means. So that section dealing with government is bracketed by the commands to love one another. So that section is also part of the illustration of what it means uh, to love one another and to carry that out in genuine integrity. He concludes in terms of a reminder of what we are, how we are to walk in verses 11 through 14, which all of that leads to this section that we're beginning to study now, focusing on some specific issues and some specific conflicts in the body of Christ. Now, it's inevitable that we're going to have differences of opinion and that we are going to run into personal conflicts within the body of Christ. And there's one reason for it, sin. We're all sinners. Because we're self-absorbed, we are going to uh, get out of fellowship and we are going to uh, come to certain issues with different viewpoints. Now, there's issues that are absolute issues that we can't, uh, compromise on at all. And those are issues related to, first of all, salvation. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Salvation does not involve any works. Salvation doesn't involve works that are put on the front side. If somebody says that you need to believe and be baptized, or if somebody says you need to uh, believe and join a particular denomination, or you need to believe and do certain good works. Or if it comes on the reverse side where people say, yes, if you be- truly believe you're saved, but if you're, if you don't have works that are in keeping with faith, if you don't have the right kind of works that qualify or, or give evidence of your faith, 
then you didn't have the right kind of faith to begin with. That is called lordship salvation. And I bet there's not a person in this room who hasn't at one time or another, for some of you it may have been many, many years ago when you were a young believer, but there's probably not one of us who hasn't looked at somebody who claimed to be a Christian and said, how in the world can that person be a Christian when they've done such and such? How in the world can that person be a Christian when they vote like that? How in the world can that person be a Christian when they are a socialist? How in the world can that person be a Christian when they're uh, anti-Israel? How in the world can that person be a Christian when they commit uh, flagrant immorality? And yet the reality in Scripture is that what we do, whatever sins we have, whether they're sins of of belief because we are committed to wrong belief systems, whether they're sins of uh, overt sins of murder, adultery, violence, assault, whatever it may be, whether it's a sin of the tongue, gossip, slander, maligning, whether it's just a mental attitude sin of anger, resentment, envy, any of those things, Those are mental attitudes since Jesus Christ paid for every single sin on the cross. That means that sin isn't the issue when we're evangelizing people. We we don't say, well, you need to believe in Jesus and clean up your life. You can't clean up your life. Only the Holy Spirit can. That's what comes after salvation. You need to just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And somebody will say, well, does that mean that I can just continue to sin with impunity? Well, that's kind of a nasty way of putting it, but yes, you can, because sin was paid for at the cross. But once you become a believer in Christ, you're going to be in the family of God, and God promises in Hebrews chapter 12 that he is going to bring discipline upon anyone who is a member of his family. So sooner or later, God will get involved and start straightening you out. But it's not the evangelist's responsibility to straighten you out. It's not the pastor's job to straighten you out. It's not other believers' job to straighten you out, although there's a responsibility in the body of Christ to encourage and admonish one another. That's done in appropriate contexts. But but sooner or later, God's going to get a hold of you if you're, a, if you're a believer in Christ and a member of God's family, and God's going to work with you. That's, that's, that is an absolute reality, and you can't compromise on the gospel at all. The second thing we can't compromise on is the spiritual life. The spiritual life is also based upon the grace principle. You don't do anything to earn God's blessing. And that's one of the most important things we can get our hands around because it is so common today in Christian circles to hear people use blessing in a lot of different ways as a greeting, as a way of saying goodbye, will God bless you, they'll answer the phone, God bless you. They use it so much it's become meaningless. Uh, But the idea is that a lot of people have, if I'm obedient to God's word, then God will bless me. That's a works blessing system. What Scripture teaches is that we are blessed not because of what we do. We're blessed because of what Christ did on the cross. When we're saved, we're saved not because of anything good on on our part. 
We're saved because of something that, that Christ did on the cross and his righteousness is given to us. And when God looks at us and sees our, that, sees that we have Christ's righteousness, he, he, re, he justifies us and regenerates us because we have Christ's righteousness, not because there's any good thing in us. Now, after salvation, he blesses us on the basis of our possession of Christ's righteousness. If we are disobedient, then God will withhold blessing because it might destroy us. A great example of this is let's say you're a proud father uh, of, a, of a newborn son, and you want everything in the world for your son, and you have pretty good financial resources, so you go out and you buy him a, a Lamborghini, and you put it in his name, and it's going to be his when he comes of age, when he's 18 years of age, or you may put a stipulation in there when he's an adult or whatever. And when he's old enough to appreciate it and to properly uh, utilize it, then you will give it to him. Is it his when he's three years old? Yes. Are you going to give it to him? No, because he will hurt himself and probably a lot of other people with it. Are you going to give it to him when he's 12? No, because he's not yet mature enough to properly handle it. Is it his? Yes, it's his. It's given to him because he's a, of his identity as a member of the family, but it's not put in, in, into his activated possession until he's mature enough where it doesn't destroy him. God does the same thing. He's not blessing us because we're obedient. He's blessing us, and he's already blessed us with all the heavenly blessings, Ephesians 1.3 says. He's only going to distribute them when we show enough maturity to handle the blessing. He's going to hold back because if he gives it too soon, it will become a problem for us. So this is grace. So we can't fudge on grace at salvation. We can't fudge on grace in terms of sanctification. But when it comes to some issues in the Christian life or some issues in life, there are some issues that are definitely moral. There are some issues that are definitely immoral, but there are some things that aren't quite moral or immoral. They are, uh, they're neutral. They're not prohibited in Scripture. They're not commanded in Scripture. They're just somewhere in between. And a term that Paul uses as we get into Romans 15 is the term doubtful things. In Romans 14.1, we read, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. So he's saying here that we are to receive or accept the one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. We're not to get involved in, in uh, just uh, arguments that don't go anywhere, that are nonproductive over these doubtful things. But the only point I want to make now, we'll get into some of that later on, the only point I want to make now is that there are, there's a category of doubtful things, that is, things that are neither uh, uh, approved of or disapproved of in, in Scripture. And the question then becomes, well, how do we handle these things? Because uh, it may surprise you, but there are some Christians who are really opinionated. <laughs> and, and they have very firm opinions about whether or not Christians ought to do or not do some of these things. 
And uh, it's just amazing. I grew up at the background that was fairly grace-oriented, grace and I didn't uh, know of anyone who held to any sort of legalism in their background. That's usually a phrase that's used. It's not always used or understood well, but that's the accepted term, so we'll use it. Uh, but there's, it always surprised me when I finally ran into some folks who had come from this kind of a background. And this happened when I was in high school. I mean, when I looked at these people, it was lo- like I was looking for somebody with the third eye. You know, they are a horn between their, uh, between their ears or something. It was, it was very strange. When I was in high school, about that time, uh, Gordon Whitelock, who was the founder and director of Camp Penile, had gone through Moody Bible Institute with a man whose name was uh, Nelson Miles, who was the uh, uh, president of Grand Rapids School of the Bible and Music, which was reduced to an acronym called Grisboom. And Grisboom was a school in the de- part of the denomination known as uh, G-A-R-B, the Greater Association of Regular Baptists. Now, that's one of many conservative, or one of several, I should say, conservative Baptist denominations that originated in the north from the Northern Baptist denomination uh, back prior to the uh, American uh, War of, uh, of Northern Aggression, as I always refer to it, there was a split in most denominations over the issue of slavery. Uh, Northern uh, Christians did not want their missions money supporting somebody who came out of a Southern uh, Christian church as a missionary, because if his family owned slaves, then they didn't want their money becoming soiled by supporting someone who was a slave owner. So this reached uh, pretty virulent proportions in the late 1840s and 1850s in all the major denominations, Methodist, Presbyterian, Church of Christ, all split north and south. And so you had the Southern Baptists and the Northern Baptists. Now, the Northern Baptist denomination went liberal fairly early. By the mid-1880s, they were already having heresy trials, legitimate heresy trials, of seminary professors who had slipped completely into 19th century religious liberalism. They denied the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. They denied uh, the virgin birth. They denied the miracles of Christ. They denied the substitutionary atonement of Christ. They denied the resurrection and uh, they denied a literal future uh, second coming of Jesus Christ. That was pretty much the essence of, of where they, they focused the battle lines, and that became known as the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And in the North, you had, uh, as this became more and more evident and infiltrate or, or filtered down into many of the local churches, there were uh, a number of groups that split off in the 1930s uh, from the late 20s, I guess, into the 1930s. One of them was the uh, Conservative Baptist Association. Many people, Conservative Baptists aren't real big here in the South. Uh, they're not Baptists who are conservative. They adopted that name as a denominational name uh, back in the, in the 30s. And um, um, one of the founders, one of the three founders of the Conservative uh, Baptist uh, denomination was actually Pastor Theme's father-in-law, and he started that out, out of his church in Tucson, Arizona. 
So this was a um, this was where the conservative Baptists came from. Well, the GARB were the same way, but they had a lot of rules. They still do. Um, you couldn't back in those days. Those kids that were going to Grisbane couldn't watch TV except for Gomer Pyle and one or two other shows, and that was it. They were even they were even had news shows censored. Nowadays, in light of the 150 channels on on uh, television today and the things that are going on in many of the uh, cable channels, we might not think that's not such a bad idea. But back then, when you only had uh, black and white, ABC, NBC, CBS, and and a few places had uh, like Channel Eight with an educational network. That seemed kind of kind of extreme that you couldn't watch most of the shows on TV. You couldn't go to movies. Uh, if you went out on a date, a chaperone had to go with you, uh, and you couldn't get within six inches of each other, and many, many other rules like that. And these kids would come down to Texas and go to Camp Penile. Um, Gordon invited these kids to come down to be counselors, and, and most of the counselors that were up at Camp Penile came out of Houston and came out of churches that were influenced by Dallas Theological Seminary and, and pastor theme and were pretty grace-oriented. And we'd come to Saturday night, which was our night off. We'd all pile into a car and go to a drive-in in, in uh, Austin or somewhere and see a movie, and these kids had never seen movies, and it was it was culture shock for them. It was a little bit of a culture shock for, my, for us because we had never met legalists before. By the end of the summer, they had gotten pretty uh, pretty grace-oriented. They kind of liked this, uh, all, all this ability to do things. But this has always been a problem in the history of Christianity because from the very, very beginning, you had people, and this is what chapters 14 and 15 are about, you had people who didn't really understand the, all of the significance of the cross in terms of paying for our sins, and they added certain kinds of things in ter- as, as absolutes in terms of how Christians should live or not live, what they should do or not do, and they would make absolutes out of things that were doubtful, that things that weren't clearly stated uh, stated in the in the scripture, and this has its history as we studied in Acts. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter fifteen. That this was a problem that one of the first problems, not the first major problem, that the early church, the apostles, had to deal with. I want you to notice. I pointed this out before in Acts fifteen that the issue came up. The issue that was coming up was, what do we do about these Gentiles? They've been unclean for centuries. They do all of these unclean things spiritually. They eat unclean food. How can we let them fellowship together with us? What are we going to do uh, about these Gentiles? And so they had a, a meeting among the apostles that we refer to as the Jerusalem Council that's uh, described in uh, Acts 15. We'll look at Acts uh, 15 verse 6, we're told the apostles and elders came together to consider the matter. That means they wanted to think it through biblically and rationally. Now, they don't, I want you to notice something here. They don't come together and pray, Lord, give us a revelation as to what we should do. See, that's how a lot of modern evangelicals would go about it in a completely wrong way. God quit giving revelation at the end of the first century. God's not going to all of a sudden 
turn on a light in your head or give you a new revelation to answer the problems that you face. He wants us to think through the issues in our life on the basis of the doctrine that's in our soul. This is one thing I love about the Jerusalem Council is this is exactly what the apostles did. They don't get a new word, a word of revelation, and these guys still had the had the revelatory gifts available to them. But God was showing this isn't going to be the normative procedure for decision-making in the Christian life. The decision-making in the Christian life comes from putting your your uh, thinking cap on in terms of Scripture and getting into the Word and thinking it through in terms of the circumstances of your life. And so they had a great discussion. And in verse 7, we're told there had been much dispute. So they were... They were going after it. They were arguing both sides of the issue back and forth. And and after there had been much dispute, Peter then rose up and says that and, and gives a summary of what had happened. And in this, he rehearses what happened when he took the gospel to the Gentiles with Cornelius back in chapters 10 and 11. And he reminds them that God who knows the heart, verse 8, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us for the same reason. When they believed, in Acts chapter 11, he gives a summary there, and he says, when they believed, they received the Holy Spirit. They didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to change. They didn't have to get circumcised. They didn't have to submit to the Mosaic law. They didn't have to do anything else. It was faith alone. And at that instant... Uh, God gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them purifying their hearts by faith. And then he hit them between the eyes, and he said, Therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke? The Mosaic Law was viewed as a yoke, something that was too controlling, because in the Mosaic Law it was outlining uh, for those who didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, didn't have a completed canon, outlining every area of life in terms of the 613 commandments in the Mosaic Law. So he says, Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they that that Jew and Gentile are both saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Notice it's based on grace. So all of this that we're going to study in chapters uh, Romans chapters uh, 14 and 15 is related to understanding grace and what it means to be gracious to others who may have different opinions in areas that are not important. And it may even be that you're right and they're wrong, but... They're wrong because they lack knowledge, they lack training, they lack instruction. And so we're going to learn how a more mature believer, identified as a strong believer, is to exercise and show his love for a weaker, uh, a weaker brother, a weaker believer. Now, when it came to the end of the council, they basically made, made a uh, summary statement in ver- which is given to us in verse 19 uh, from James that he says, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to, one, abstain from things polluted by idols, number two, 
from sexual immorality, three from things strangled, uh, that is, uh, that was prohibited uh, by the Mosaic Law, and from blood. Now, the reason they're asking that is not because it's inherent to the spiritual life. The reason they're saying that is because this was a cultural problem for the Jews. And if we're going to have peace and harmony in the synagogue, then let's not practice things that are going to get our fellow believers all upset uh, when they don't quite yet understand all of the issues. So these things did not have to do with, with absolutes. It had to do with things that were relative. It's, a, it's an uh, aspect of loving one another. Let's go back to Romans chapter 14. So this verse, this chapter begins with a command. Receive one who is weak in the faith. In other words, there's a tendency, and I know nobody here would ever do this, but there is a tendency sometimes when mature believers are around somebody who are some other believers who don't quite understand the things the way you do and who might be immature in their faith and they might be legalistic a little bit and we just don't want to associate with them because we want to relax and enjoy life the way we understand it and we don't want to put up with these little sniveling babies running around. You know, because they're always messing in their spiritual diapers and we don't want to have to clean up the mess. But that's, so, so Paul addresses this and he's addressing mature believers. He said, receive the one who is weak in the faith. And this word receive means to not just accept and let him come in and sit in church. So we're, we're going to let him come and sit in church and hopefully they'll get straightened out, but we're not going to invite him over for fried chicken on Sunday either because uh, we'll have a glass of wine and we don't want to be worried about them. So uh, the word has a further idea of accepting someone into your company or fellowship. Now I want you to look at 14.3. 14.3 says, Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. So the one who eats is the mature believer. He understands that this this issue with the dietary law is not that big of a problem. And and he may just get really upset and irritated with the immature believer who's trying to make an issue out of the dietary law. So Paul, Paul is... I get the sense from these commands that there was definitely a, a, a group, a, sort of a clique within the Roman church that was, we're mature, we understand our freedom, and we don't want to be, be bothered by these messy little immature believers who want to get involved in some kind of legalism. So the first thing Paul says is to receive the one who is weak, because apparently they weren't, and this should be an ongoing thing. It's a present uh, imperative indicating this should be an ongoing action. And then he gives a prohibition in verse 3, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. That word received is the same word we have here, proslambano. God has accepted him into fellowship. This is one of those cases where fellowship relates to eternal fellowship, our, our union with Christ uh, forever. So if God has accepted this little whiny, diaper-messing, legalist, 
legalistically inclined uh, baby believer who hasn't learned very much yet, so should we. Don't let the fact that he's a bit of a problem to deal with uh, be a reason why you don't have fellowship with him and accept him and invite him into church. Now, you know, this is an important principle to understand for a small church. A lot of us have known each other a long time. Some of us have known each other too long, maybe. But there's some of us who've known each other I mean, I've, I've known some of you since uh, there are people in this congregation I've known since since I, I don't I can't remember when I didn't know them. I mean, we've known each other since I was an infant, and maybe some here that when they were infants as well. So we've known each other a, a very long time, and we have a lot of history together. Now, it's typical in churches where you have people who really like and enjoy one another's fellowship. It's sort of a trend to develop little cliques and to get together and you enjoy the people that you know and that you've spent a lot of time with, and there's nothing at all wrong with that. But as a church and as a congregation, we constantly have new people to come into the church. And most of the time, I'm not jumping on the congregation because you haven't done this, but just as a reminder, most of the time, the congregation is very welcoming of new people. And you accept new people very well, and you're very gracious and generous in that respect. I think there's a few cases here and there where there's a few that haven't been that way on occasion, but not as a norm. And and that's also understandable. But we need to recognize that as a small church, we don't want to run into sort of the uh, uh, syndrome of a small town where you just have a few clicks, everybody knew each other, and anybody that's new that comes into town uh, has to be there for 10 or 15 years before they're considered to be part of the part of the church. And um, when my, my first church, which was down in Lamarck, had that syndrome, and the mean age in that church, and this included all the bed babies in the nursery, was 58 years of age. And there was a huge gap. If you did a demographic study on the congregation, there was a huge gap right in the middle of the congregation. From 35 to 55, there were three couples. And that's because 10 years before I became the pastor, the church had split. The people that were all 60 and older, at that time they were about 50 and older, but they weren't willing to relinquish the control and the authority and the power they had had in that church for 30 years to their children and the next generation. And the pastor that they had 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 been the pastor of that church for 40 years, and he had retired in 1974. And this older group were still in lockstep, and they weren't going to open up to anybody that was new, even though many of them were their own children. And so there was this huge split that occurred, and everybody from about uh, 25 to 45 left. That's why when I got there, there was nobody there between 35 and 55 except these these three couples, two of whom had come to the church since the split in 74. It was a terrible example of this sort of clannishness or cliquishness. And I won't even go into the a really fun story of my first, very first uh, candidating at the first church I ever went to. Talk about clannish. It was in the heart of Cajun country. It was so Cajun that one of the deacons was like Amos Moses. His left arm was gone clean up to the elbow. 
And his son had to translate into French the questions and answers that they had for me during the, during the interview. And that was an extremely clannish place. I've spoken at a lot of churches over the last probably 40 years almost, been in a lot of places that I've spoken on Sunday morning, and without exception, every place that I've spoken, I've been invited out for coffee or let's go have lunch, let's take you out for dinner, something like that. I went to that church in Opelousas, Louisiana, and I stood at the back door. Everybody filed out. I shook hands with everybody as they went out. They all went and got in their cars, and I stood there going, I don't even know where the closest Popeye's is. Where do I go for lunch? It was so clannish. That's one thing we need to avoid is, is uh, any kind of appearance of excluding new people, especially if they may not come from a similar background uh, to the one we have. So that's what Paul's addressing here. Receive the one who is weak in the faith. Now, this word weak is one of my favorite words to do a word study. It's one of the first words I ever ever really got into in terms of doing an an in-depth word study. And this is the Greek word astheneo. This is the verb form. The A at the beginning is like our English negative prefix un. Uh, It negates the, the, the main root. The root stheneo means strength. So this is someone who is without strength. So if they're without strength, they are Weak. Now, words, word meanings do not derive from their etymology. That's what's, when people do that, that's called an etymological fallacy. Uh, word meanings come from usage. And this word has two primary uses. And it's really interesting how they lay out in Scripture. It means to be weak, and as I've indicated by the first clause following the colon, the first is a physical sense to be weak physically in the sense of an illness. Uh, this is used about 80% of the time that the word asthenesis, asthenes, the noun, or astheneo, the verb, is used in the Gospels and Acts. It refers to physical illness, and Jesus is healing those who are sick, asthenes. But there are a few examples in the, in the New Testament when Jesus says that the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. He's not talking about sickness there. He's talking about a spiritual inability. So there are a few examples in the Gospels where the word emphasizes a spiritual weakness, not a physical weakness. But when you get into the epistles, when you start looking at how the word is used in Romans all the way through Jude, it, it reverses its primary connotation. And about 20% of the uses refer to physical illness, maybe not even that many. It usually refers to spiritual weakness, spiritual inability, somebody who's really struggling in the Christian life, and they, they're, they're facing a lot of trials and testing, and they just want to give up. They just want to fade out. They're not persevering. This is a major concept in in the epistle of James. Uh, so the second sense is to be uh, to be spiritually weak in the sense of being weary of obedience, as in James five fourteen. Now, if you're familiar with the James passage, this is a passage that usually stumps a lot of people when they read it because it just doesn't seem to quite make sense to them. It, it seems to be talking about healing. 
in um, verse 13 of James 5, we read, Is anyone among you suffering? Oh, we're talking about physical illness, because later in the next verse he says, Is anyone among you sick? That word for sick is this word. Now, to translate it sick means that the, inter- the translator interpreted the word for us. He sh- if he was translating correctly as simply translating, he would have said, is anyone among you weak? And then leave it up to the d- reader to discover whether he's talking about weak spiritually or weak physically. But the core meaning of the word is to be weak. And so we immediately are slanted in a direction in this section of talking about physical illness. It isn't talking about physical illness at all. That would be like, like uh, James. James is talking about cooking apples all the way through to James uh, 5.12, and then all of a sudden he st- starts shifting to talking about how you prepare a prime rib roast. It doesn't fit the context He's been talking about perseverance in times of spiritual testing. The problem now is a person who is so weary that they want to fade out. So uh, verse 13 of James says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. Is anyone among you sick? It shouldn't be sick. It's weary or weak. If anyone among you weak spiritually... Let him call for the elders of the church. Now, this is written long before there are uh, uh, the pastoral epistles. It was probably the first epistle written in the New Testament. And I think that that word pres, uh, presbyteroi there should simply be t- translated mature Christians, uh, not an elder in the sense of an office. Let him call for the mature in the, of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil. Now, if this were some sort of ceremonial ritual, okay, and, and this is what you have in, 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 uh, in, in some denominations where they will uh, go get oil and they will anoint somebody uh, because they're sick, and that is supposed to heal them. See, this is like, reads like an unconditional promise. Let him, let them call for the elders, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. That's how verse 15 is translated. So this is an absolute promise. And how many people here, I won't ask for a show of hands, how many people here have prayed for somebody who was sick? They had cancer, they had leukemia, they had some fatal illness, and they prayed for them and prayed for them. They may have even uh, anointed them with oil, and yet that person died. Uh, this, the, it, it's contrary to this. When I was, and, and the answer that you get from the, the healing charismatics is that, well, you didn't have the right kind of faith. You didn't have faith like a child. And I always like to tell them, oh, really? When I was born, my mother had polio. She contracted polio two months before I was born. So I never knew my mother to walk. She was in a wheelchair the whole time I knew her. When I was born, she was in an iron lung because the polio advanced up to where it had paralyzed her diaphragm and her ability to breathe on her own. So they would put uh, polio patients into this, this contraption that would breathe for them, that would uh, somehow it had a, had a mechanism on it that would p- put pressure upon their diaphragm and cause them to push in and then release, push in and release to help them and enable them to breathe. 
Now, those ladies who are here who have gone through natural childbirth know that one of the things that's required of them is to push. We have to have diaphragm muscles and abdominal muscles to push. My mother didn't have any. So this was just really a remarkable situation because they basically pulled her. I imagine they probably had to do it on more than one occasion, but they were pulling her out and trying to get me out at the same time. But that's how I was born. I remember when I was a little boy, my mother had these these braces that would hook into holes in, in her shoes, and she would put those on, and she would put these braces on her legs and these crutches, and she would get up, and, and for years she did this physical therapy until I was probably 9 or 10, um, thinking that somehow maybe this would re-energize those muscles. And I became a believer when I was 6 years old, and I would pray every night that my mother would walk again. And I think when I was six, seven, eight, nine, or ten, I had the faith of a child. I believed God could do it. There was no no qualifications entering my mind from Scripture or anything like that. Uh, I didn't know about this promise. I just believed God could do it. Now, but that's not what this is talking about, and that's not a promise we have in Scripture. This is talking about the fact that if you're struggling spiritually and you are weak in the faith then you're to call for have mature believers around you who can pray over you. And the word for anointing with oil here is an interesting word. It's the word um, kriya. No, excuse me. It's, it's I've just lost the word. Uh, uh, alepho. It's the Greek word alepho. Now, there are two words for anointing in Greek, alepho and kriyo. Kriyo is the verb from which we get our uh, get the word Christos, the anointed one. Okay, for it's the equivalent to Messiah. That is a ceremonial ritual term. This is the word alepho. Every morning when you ladies, you get up, you go in, you wash your face, you anoint your face with various creams. Uh, some men do as well. You don't have to do that so much in, in Houston because we're in such a humid climate. It keeps all of the women in Houston looking young. But if you go to the Middle East where it's an exceptionally dry climate, Everybody would put oil on as part of their daily toiletry in order to uh, take care of their skin. This was the normative thing. Remember in Matthew chapter uh, chapter six, Jesus tells the Pharisees that when you're fasting, or tells his disciples when you fast, don't be like the Pharisees and going around looking like you're fasting, but anoint yourself so that when you're out, nobody knows that you're fasting. They can't look at you and say, man, that guy just hadn't had a shower in a while, and he hadn't bathed, he looks terrible, smells bad. He must be fasting. He's miserable. Uh, Jesus says, no, anoint yourself. So it has to do with the fact that uh, the situation here, a person's weary in their spiritual struggle, they're depressed. They're down. When, if any of you have ever struggled with depression, sometimes you don't even want to get out of bed in the morning. And when you do, you don't want to go take a shower. You don't want to do anything. You just feel like you have a heavy weight on yourself. And so you don't want to do those things. So this is very practical advice. The elders are to pray over him. And then, hey, go take a shower. I remember going through some tough times at one time in my life, and one of my seminary professors would call me every morning and say, did you have a good breakfast? said, did you take your walk this morning? You know, that's this kind of advice. You need to do those things every day, and that will physically help you to get through them. That's all that is being said here. And then the prayer of faith, 
It's not the anointing, it's the prayer of faith will save or will lift up or strengthen the one who is weary and the Lord will lift him up. And if he has committed sins, this is an additional thing. And if, the and means in addition, if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. If sin is has entered into his life because he's failed to persevere in times of testing. So this is this is the background for understanding this particular word. In Romans uh, chapter four, in Romans fourteen two and three, in the next couple of verses, that's what this refers to as someone who is weak uh, spiritually or immature. It's used that way in First Corinthians eight eleven and twelve as well. So we are to receive the one who is weak. In the faith, that is, they don't know enough doctrine to know the truth, so they're operating on a false set of standards. Now, we're going to come back next time and get into this in a little more detail to understand how we are supposed to handle this kind of a person and what the issues are for us, and that will start next Thursday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of your grace, that we're to deal with everyone in grace. We're to deal with everyone on the basis of love as demonstrated uh, through your gift of your Son and as demonstrated by the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these principles this evening. In Christ's name, amen.